We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Everybody, it's Steve with Sons Fidelity. I'm coming at you with another episode of How the Faith Came to the United States. This one is on Utah. I'm going to rely heavily on the book Salt of the Earth, The History of the Catholic Church, in Utah, 1776-2007, the third edition by Bernice, Bernice Mooney, who I think died about 10 years ago because I looked up trying to see about just contacting her about this. But she uh, is not able to pull that off, obviously. So, uh, Hail Mary is for her eternal soul. So we'll get right into it. Chapter 1, Genesis 1776. The state of Utah is not generally considered significantly Catholic. The official population estimate for the state, as of July 1st, 2007, totaled 2,699,554, of which approximately 250,000, or 9.3%, were Catholic. Yet, Catholicism is indigenous to Utah. Franciscan missionaries, Fra Francesco Dominguez and Fra Francesco Escalante, who we've heard of from before in other states, were among the first non-Native Americans to penetrate the area within Utah's present borders. Inspired by the ancient traditions of the faith, Father Dominguez and Father Escalante led a procession of men and women who, like athletes slowly pa passing along an Olympian torch, gradually brought the spirit of Catholicism to every phase of the discovery and settlement of Utah territory. The effusion came from the personages of forgotten traders trotting the Spanish trail and marking their faith on its physical features. Iroquois families, trappers, who matched Christian names to Utah's rivers, valleys, and mountains. They were among the surveyors, the roadmakers, the cowboys, the freighters, the men gored by oxen, the children stolen in slavery, and the women lonely in anguish of childbirth. They rode the Pony Express, manned the lowly way station, strung the telephone line, soldiered the trail, prospected mine, and smelt ore and built the railroad. When Father Juniper Serra, head of the California missions, was in Mexico City in 1773, he advised the Viceroy to send out two surveys, one to search for a route from Sonora to Monterey, and the other to explore the territory and open the trail between Santa Fe and the sea. Included in the lands over which Spain claimed sovereignty were the western slope of the central Rockies, the canyon country of the upper Colorado River and the desert lands extending across the Great Basin. In 1776, Spanish authorities sent an exploratory expedition departing from Santa Fe into these lands to search for the route to Monterey, California. To command a party of 10 men on the venture, they chose two proven Franciscan missionaries, Father Francesco Escalante, a prospective observer and experienced traveler, and his ecclesiastical superior in New Mexico, Father Francesco Dominguez, who would organize and direct the expedition. Born in the northern Santander Mountains of Spain, Father Escalante had crossed the ocean at age 17. He entered the Convento Grande, a seminary in Mexico City from which Father Dominguez also had graduated. Following his ordination, Father Escalante was assigned by the Franciscan province of the Holy Gospel to its custody of the conversion of St. Paul in New Mexico. He would then serve as a priest of Our Lady Guadalupe in the Pueblo of Zuni. A veteran of extensive encounters with the Zuni and Hupi Indians, Father Escalante had been among those consulted in early the search for the route from Santa Fe to California. 
Discouraged with the Hopi's rejection of Christianity and seeking to avoid the hazards of the California River, Father Escalante felt almost certain that the most feasible route to Monterey could be discovered by passing through the lands of the Ute Indians to the north. Father Dominguez, a native of Mexico City, had been appointed by the Francisco Provincial as a commissary visitor to inspect the missions in New Mexico and to advance the search of the trail from Santa Fe to Monterey. He was 10 years older than Father Escalante, who was about 26 years of age at the time the expedition departed Santa Fe. In 1950, historian Herbert Bolton edited a scholarly translation of the journal in which Father Escalante made daily entries. Bolton portrayed the expedition as work, Pageant in the Wilderness, the story of the Escalante expedition to the interior basin, 1776, including the diary and itinerary. He concluded this heroic reconnaissance represented, quote, one of the great exploring expeditions of North American history made without noise of arms and without giving offense to the natives to whose country they had traveled. The title of Bolton's work suggested that Father Escalante's leadership of the exploration might have been dominant. But Walter Briggs, in his beautifully illustrated study published in 1976, states unequivocally, quote, let there be no mistake, Dominguez, not Escalante, led the expedition. Further light upon the roles of both men is shed by respected authorities Eleanor Ab Adams and Fra Angelico Chavez in their anointed translation of Father Dominguez's visitation, The Mission of New Mexico, 1776. They write, quote, Fra Francisco Dominguez was not only a full partner, but the senior partner in the splendid wayfaring for which Valles de Escalante has long received the lion's share of the credit. They remained fast friends under conditions calculated to mar the best of human relationships. Valles Escalante left his home mission, Our Lady Guadalupe in the Pueblo of Zuni, for Santa Fe on June 29, 1776. There he and Father Dominguez, along with Don Pedro Mendelute, governor of Santa Fe, completed final plans for the journey into the territories of the Utes. Over a period of five months, the group of 10 travelers increased en route to 14 by addition of two guys and two Indian runaways, which traveled nearly 2,000 miles in a trail circling from Santa Fe to western Colorado, northern central and southern Utah, northern Arizona, and western New Mexico. Bernard DeVoto describes Father Escalante's writings along the way. The journal is all gulches, canyons, mesas, mountain-sized ridges, labyrinths, mazes, and rock slides. It is all untroubled, too, certainly the most serene document of the annals of American exploration. Father Escalante noted each day's events, often signaling off with the distance traveled every day. The entry of August 17th reads typically, Today, seven leagues which in a straight line would be four to the north. The entourage moved north and westward through western Colorado during August, and by September 16th had crossed into northern Utah at the site of present town Jansen. The missionaries gave Christian names to points of interest along the pristine path of Utah landscape. When they descended Spanish Fork Canyon and came upon Utah Valley September 23, they named the area the lake and the valley of Our Lady of Mercy of the Timpanogos people and their campsite, the Holy Name of Jesus. They visited Laguna Indians for there for two days, then moved on toward Monterey as winter weather approached. The journal entry of the 6th day of October reads, On the 6th, morning came with snow falling, and this went on all day long without season, and for this reason we could not undertake a day's march. Night came, and on seeing that it would not stop, we implored the intercession of our mother and patroness by praying aloud in common the three parts of her rosary and by chanting the litany, the one of all saints. And God was pleased that by nine at night it should cease to snow, hail, and rain. Conditions worst on the eighth day of October. Today we suffer greatly from the cold because the north wind did not cease blowing all day, and most acutely. Up to here, we had kept our intent of reaching the garrison and new establishments of Monterey, but figuring that we were still distant from them, we had many leagues left to us towards the west. 
since winter had already set in most severely, for all the Sierras we managed to see in all directions were covered with snow, the weather very unsettled. We therefore feared that long before we got there, the passes would be close to us. For the provisions we had were very low by now, and so we could expose ourselves to perishing from hunger, if not from the cold. By October 11th, hungry and exhausted from the bitter cold air, the party dismounted to settle the growing tension among them over the possibility of turning back to Santa Fe. Dominguez reviewed the imminent danger of their plight in response to the opposition of Don Bernardo Miera, Don Joaquim Leon, and Andre Muniz, and then led all the travelers in fervent prayer together. They agreed to the casting of lots, and in a decisive moment of submission to God's will, the explorers abandoned their mission to Monterey. They then continued southward, and by early November entered the area now known as the northwestern corner of Arizona. After failing miserably in the hazardous attempt to cross the treacherous Colorado River at present-day's Lee Ferry, they trudged on another week before discovering, farther north, the point now famous as the Crossing of the Fathers. Exhausted but exhilarated, Father Escalante recalled that night, the seventh day of November, at about five o'clock in the afternoon, we all accomplished the passage of the river, praising the Lord our God and firing off a, a number of musket shots to show the joy we felt on having triumphed over so great an obstacle that it cost us so much labor and long delay. Continuing on, they sometimes lost their way and could not find a trail to lead them through difficult areas of woods or stone that seemed impassable. Adding to their frustrations were occasional misunderstandings. An entry on November 12th relates, Because of the persisting great cold, we held back for a spell while the rest of the companions went on ahead in order to build a fire and warm up Don Miera, who was ready to freeze on us and who we feared could not survive so much cold. That is why the rest of the companions arrived ahead of us at the spring mentioned and before we could overtake them, kept on going without filling up the vessels which we brought along for this purpose. Because of their carelessness, we suffered great thirst tonight. Desperately short of food and water, by November 13th, they had nothing to eat except roasted leather. And two days later, no supper at all. Father Escalante's writings captured these times of misery as well as moments of euphoria as the expedition transversed nearly 2,000 miles of western mountains, rivers, and desert and valley terrain, all unknown and unpredictable. Don Bernardo Miera, then in his mid-fifties, an engineer, cartographer, astronomer, sculptor, painter, rancher, armor, armorer, and lately captain of militia and civil magistrate, drew maps of remarkable accuracy, which would be praised as the first ever made of Utah, Colorado, and adjoining areas. Upon the return of the expedition to Santa Fe, Don Bernardo Miera made an eloquent plea for the mission settlements in the San Juan Basin and near the shores of Utah Lake, and a letter to the King of Spain. But the tide of history was already turning. The entourage came home to a growing deterioration of within the slowly crumbling Spanish Empire. Father Dominguez and Father Escalante inscribed their signatures in their diary as they presented it to Governor Mendunueta on January 3, 1777, one day after they returned to Santa Fe. However, the Spanish authorities considered the expedition a failure. No route was found to Monterey. This judgment overlooked the trails that the expedition had opened up to guide future explorers and travelers, and also the recorded experience of the major unknown wilderness and its people. The officials disregarded the remarkable maps Don Bernardo Miera had drawn and regretted that no missions were established among the Indians even though the Utes welcomed Christianity and pleaded for the return of the missionaries. The heroic courage and perseverance of Father Dominguez was regarded as a superfluity in New Mexico. He was reassigned to various posts in the northern frontiers of Mexico, and he died in 1805 at the age of about 65. Father Escalante lived in New Mexico and worked in several Indian pueblos. Taken sick on a trip to New Mexico, he died in April 1780, at about 30 years of age in the town of Parral. 
Gradually, the passage of time confirmed the epic journey as a major contribution to the exploration of the American Southwest. Through the years, their major role in the early history of Utah has been recognized and respected. Adventurous trappers and traders entered the tribal domain of the Ute Indian Nation, the territory that now includes the present state of Utah. From the Santa Fe Trail, first opened by Captain William Becknell on September 1, 1821, others came from St. Louis, the Great Lakes, and Canada. Those from the eastern United States took the first covered wagons to the Rockies in 1830. These rugged individualists traded their pelts at the outpost of the American Rocky Mound, Hudson's Bay, and Northwest Fur Companies for coins or supplies. Flintlock rifles, skinning knives, and tomahawks were tools of the mountain men, and the tanned hides of its prey were the source of its wardrobe. A Catholic presence appeared in Utah's trailblazers named landmarks and trading posts. The San Juan River, in southeast Utah, was named in honor of St. John the Apostle, and the river gives its name to the country. Midway up the eastern side of the state is the San Rafael country, the San Rafael Swell and River, being named for the Archangel Raphael. High in the mountains east of Ogden is Monte Cristo, the Mountain of Christ. French trappers named Cache Valley, Ogden's Fort, and Provost Trading Post. Western Utah has its San Francisco Mountains, where the town of Frisco was once a booming mining camp, and the southwest corner is proud of its Santa Clara River and Town, named in honor of St. Clara, the founder of the 13th century of the first Franciscan sisters. The Rio Virgin, which flows through Zion Park and irrigates all of the southwest corner, was named in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The Laguna Indians on Lake Tempanogos had welcomed the Dominguez Escalante expedition in 1776 and were receptive to Christian traders. They were friendly with Iroquois trappers who worked for the Northwest Fur and Hudson's Bay Company and had become unlikely missionaries in the Pacific Northwest. Peter Ogden wrote in the journal of his expedition to Utah in 1825, quote, It appears we are now in, on the Utes' land. His right-hand man, William Kitson, added, these Indians had accepted Christianity as evidenced by the silver and brass crosses worn about the necks. Ogden, a Canadian fur trapper and chief trader of the Hudson's Bay Fur Company, explored the Great Salt Lake and led expeditions into the Snake River country between 1824 and 1830. The Ogden Valley, as well as a town founded in 1850 within the valley, were, named, were both named for him and continue to bear his name today. The trailblazers were primarily of Spanish, English, and Irish ethnic origin and had brought their ancestral religious heritage to the mountains with them. Jedediah Strong Smith, 1799-1831, the outstanding member of William Henry Ashley's Rocky Mountain Fur Company and America's prime explorer after Lewis and Clark, was a Methodist who read his Bible often and regularly knelt in prayer. A trap associated with Smith was Robert Campbell, 1804-1879, a Presbyterian who took his Bible reading seriously, as we learn from his journal. In the Spanish Catholic tradition, Manuel Mestas linked the Domingos Escalante expedition with the age of mountain men. By 1805, he had been a Ute interpreter for 50 years and a peacemaker among the Utah and Comanche tribes. Mesta's friendship with the Utes at Lake Timpanogos suggests a close connection between the Spaniards and Utahs. In the person of the mountain man Thomas Fitzpatrick, 1799-1854, born and educated in County Cavan, Ireland, came the first of a series of Irish influences upon early Utah Catholicism. He passed through the land of the Utes often during his extensive travels. Historian Hoffen wrote of Fitzpatrick, no other man is so representative of his epoch. He was one of the little party that in March 1824 made the effective discovery of the South Pass, the future gateway to Oregon. He was the leader of the trapper bands, an explorer of the wilderness, an Indian fighter, and head of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. In 1831, Fitzpatrick rescued a starving Arapaho boy who was about six years old and whom he named Friday. 
schooled in St. Louis, Friday became conversant in both English and Arapaho and served as a translator for Fitzpatrick, who had been appointed by the federal government as the first Indian agent of the tribes of the Plains. At age 50, likely in November 1849, Fitzpatrick married as his lawful wife, Margaret, the daughter of John Poisal and Snake Woman, the sister of Chief Left Hand. Fitzpatrick named their first child a son, Andrew Jackson, in support of President Jackson and his doctrine of manifest destiny. Father Pierre de Schmidt, the missionary explorer with whom Fitzpatrick had formed a warm friendship, baptized the child on September 12, 1851, and later in the day also baptized eight half-breed children and five adults. During the Great Indian Council of 1851, Fitzpatrick and his Indian delegates were honored in St. Louis and in Washington. Fitzpatrick met with President Millard Fillmore. Fitzpatrick died of pneumonia in, the, in a Washington hotel on February 7, 1854, and was buried in the Congressional Cemetery. He had placed Robert Campbell in charge of his estate. Christopher Kit Carson, in his memoirs dated 1809-1856, told of being in Utah country to trade furs in the spring of 1840 and to explore the Great Salt Lake with the John C. Fremont expedition. He described an excursion from which Fremont called Disappointed Island, Fremont Island, on the Great Salt Lake, September 9, 1843. We remained on the island part of one day and night. We brought with us fresh water for cooking purposes, found nothing of any great importance. There was no springs and was perfectly barren. We ascended the mountain and, under shelving rock, cut a large cross, which is there to this day. Kit Carson was baptized by Padre Antonio Jose Martinez, January 28, 1842, and married Josefa in Taos, New Mexico, on February 6, 1843, in the presence of two canonical witnesses, George Bent, and Maria de la Cruz Padilla. The land that would become the state of Utah was wrestled from Mexico by the United States in a war in 1848. This land, once primar primarily a domain of the Ute Indian nation, was then thrown open to an influx of immigrants working their way to the western frontier. Catholics were well represented in the accumulating force of pioneer settlement. As part of his effort to assume ecclesiastical governance, the Roman pontiff Pope Pius IX cut away the territory of California from the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Durango in Old Mexico and in 1850 erected Diocese of Monterey in California. Utah west of the Colorado River appeared to be included in this new diocese. Within three years, however, the Diocese of Monterey was divided and split by an east-west line approximately at the 37th parallel drawn to the Colorado River. South of the line was the new Diocese of Monterey, extending south to the Mexican border. North of the line, the Pope created the Archdiocese of San Francisco, reaching north to Oregon Territory at the 42nd parallel and east to the Colorado River. Thus, Utah Territory, with official boundaries set up by the U.S. Congress in 1850, fell under the ecclesiastical jurisdiction of Archbishop Joseph Sadak Alame, Dominican, first Archbishop of San Francisco, who would serve from 1853 to 1884. Occasionally, among the immigrants moving westward and eventually into Utah, there traveled, perhaps on muleback or in a bucking stag coach, a Catholic priest. He was a special breed of man, doggedly integrating a pioneer spirit with the strength of his faith. In Nevada, he was Father Patrick Manogue of Virginia City, and in Carson City, Father Thomas Grace, both great missionary bishops. In Idaho, he was Father Toussaint Mesple, missionary to the Indians, army chaplain and strong supporter of Bishop Louise Aloysius Lutens of the Idaho Vicariate. He was the Jesuit missionary, Father de Schmidt from St. Louis, bringing the cross of Christ to the plains and mountain Indians, and in 1841, almost, but not quite, penetrating Utah. In May 1858, Father de Schmidt had been commissioned a chaplain under General W.S. Harney, who was marching troops westward from Fort Leavenworth 
to reinforce the federal government's Utah Expeditionary Force. Now it seemed he would enter Utah. However, orders were changed and the troops were diverted to Oregon Territory because the rising revolts among the Indians there. In September, General Harney left from New York to make the trip to the Northwest. Fowler Schmidt was ordered to accompany him and did so, thus bypassing Utah Territory. Not many more than a dozen priests found their way into Utah during the days of its uncertain Catholic mornings. Among these was Father Bonaventure Keller, 1822-1877. He is believed to be the first non-Mormon minister of religion to visit Utah. It was the Utah War, 1857-1859, that brought him. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, known as the Mormons, had come to Utah in 1847 and, by right of prescription, assumed ownership of its fertile valleys and mountain slopes. Until 1857, except for federal government officials, Utah remained almost wholly Mormon. But the territorial claims of the theocratic settlement and the publication of a revelation on celestial marriage with its accompanying issue of polygamy aroused growing national concern. The social and religious conflict that followed escalated into the Utah War that ultimately confirmed the authority of the federal government in Utah Territory. From that period on, people of all faiths entered Utah Territory. Among them were military men, merchants, miners, and stagecoach and Pony Express personnel. Prior to their coming, no identifiable Catholic community had existed in Salt Lake City. Father Bonaventure Keller was welcomed in April 1859 by federal troops garrisoned at Camp Floyd, located south of Salt Lake City near present town Lehigh in Utah County. The troops numbered approximately 3,000, with a contingent almost as large as civilians in official and unofficial capacities. Many of the enlisted men were Irish or German immigrants. In a letter dated January 25, 1859, the Post Council petitioned the War Department for a Catholic chaplain to be named by Archbishop Francis Patrick Kenrick of Baltimore, who held the office of papal delegate at that time. The Post Council required only that the chaplain be native-born American. However, Father Keller arrived at Camp Floyd before a response to the letter had been received and before a priest had been assigned as chaplain. He had been en route to Philadelphia from California, but upon arriving at Salt Lake City, he was taken sick and unable to continue his journey eastward. Remaining to recuperate but exhausted of funds, he visited Camp Floyd, where Catholics among the troops urged him to stay. With the authorization of Archbishop Alamy and permission of the commanding general of the Utah forces, Albert Sidney Johnston, who had established Camp Floyd, Father Keller remained until October 1859, offering Sunday masses in the post theater and baptizing Mary and burying the dead. According to the minister provincial of his religious order, he is believed to have kept a record no longer ex extent of 26 baptisms and three marriages performed at Camp Floyd during this period. He was never commissioned a chaplain for the camp, possibly because he was not a native-born American, as speci specified in conditions originally imposed by the Post Council. Likely, too, he was subject to the nativist hosti hostility prevalent in America at this time. John Wolcott Phelps, an officer stationed at Camp Floyd, expressed disgust in his diary at the desire for a Catholic priest as camp chaplain. Yet Catholic Utah history is indebted to Phelps for his entry of Friday, June 10, 1859, when he noted the presence of a Catholic in camp, quote, the first clergyman of any denomination, I believe, who has arrived in this valley. In a later entry, he noted the participation of a Catholic priest in his robes at a funeral. Camp records of July 18, 1859 confirmed the burial of Private John McKay. This interment represents the first recorded Catholic funeral in Utah. Like Dominguez and Escalante, Father Keller was a Franciscan, but of a different branch known at the time as the Order of Minors Conventual and more familiar as the Black Franciscans a reference to the black rather than brown clerical habit. He remains the first known priest to offer Mass in a Sambal congregation in Utah Territory. Born November 2, 1822, in Upper Bavaria, 
Father Bonaventure Keller was ordained a priest in Bavaria, August 7, 1845, in response to a plea by Bishop John Mary Odin of Galveston for priests to serve German immigrants within his diocese. Father Keller was named superior of the newly established American mission in Texas in 1852. Poor health forced his departure from Texas in 1854. Father Keller later served in the Diocese of Cincinnati, then in Brooklyn, and in Philadelphia before setting out for California to establish a monastery there among German immigrants. It was upon his return to Philadelphia by overland route that Father Keller entered into Salt Lake City in April 1859 and undertook his duties at Camp Floyd. In an apparent confusion of authority after he left Salt Lake City in October 1859, Father Keller's superior recalled him to Philadelphia over the protest of Archbishop Alamey. Father Keller later served in Utica, New York, and Louisville, Kentucky. Elected to the office of provincial of his religious order by the first provincial chapter in 1872, he guided the destinies of the province until his death in April 5, 1877. It was five years after Father Keller's departure from Salt Lake City that another Catholic priest was known to have come to Utah. In the interim, with civil war spreading across the land, a new ecclesiastical jurisdiction that was created in 1861 to meet the needs of Northern California, the gold-filled towns of the Sierras and the new camps of the eastern slopes of Nevada, Bishop Eugene O'Connell, of the new vicariate of Marysville, assumed responsibility for all the territory north of the 39th parallel east of the eastern boundary of Nevada, a boundary twice changed in succeeding years. Not clear on the turmoil of Lincoln's war was the responsibility for Utah. Reflecting this confusion, the venerable vicar apostolic John B. Maige, S.J., of the once vast and nebulous vicariate of Indian Territory, a vicariate established in Kansas in 1850, that would become the Diocese of Leavenworth in 1877, deemed Utah somehow under his jurisdiction until the situation was clarified. He urged a visit to Utah by Father Joseph Mashbuff of Denver, Colorado, who would be named Vicar Bishop of the Vicariate of Colorado, Utah from 1868 to 1870. Meanwhile, Father Jean-Baptiste Raverde of the Diocese of Santa Fe had been sent in 1860 to Pikes Peak region in Colorado following the gold rush there in 1859. Father Raverde later joined the Camp Douglas in Salt Lake City, arriving there in September 1864. He remained several days instructing children and blessing the graves of the soldiers. The Salt Lake newspaper, the Daily Union, Vedette, reported that he offered Mass on Sunday, September 26, 1864, at the Camp Theater, noting also that he baptized six children. He would remain until Wednesday, the newspaper read, and Mass would be celebrated each day at 7 a.m. Father Reverde then moved on to the gold fields of Bannock in Virginia City and Montana Territory. Next priest to appear upon the Utah scene was Father Edward Kelly, who anchored the Catholic Church in Salt Lake City. Ordained by Archbishop Alamey in July 16, 1865 for the Vicariate of Marysville, where he was temporarily assigned, he recorded his first baptism on August 6 that same year. He then assisted Father Patrick O'Reilly in Gold Hill, Nevada, and from there moved on to establish the church in Austin, Nevada, where he remained until late April 1866. Three days east of Austin, by way of overland stage, lay Salt Lake City. And from nearby Camp Douglas came the call to Father Kelly to attend the second dime. It is unknown whether Father Kelly came to Salt Lake City as pastor of Austin intending to establish a mission or whether he came upon special assignment. Perhaps General Patrick Edward Connor founder and commander of Fort Douglas, anticipating his retirement in June 6, 1866, had urged a priest to come. Also, Bishop Alamey would likely have desired to send a priest to look for the situation in Salt Lake City, for in a Western movement of America, no Catholic bishop quite knew what to do about the land of the Mormons. Salt Lake City, an incorporated city, was located in a territory through which it became apparent that transcontinental railroad would soon pass. The Mormon community was stable, for it was planted along the land, upon the land. Not so the Catholics. They were soldiers, miners, mule skinners, stage drivers, telegraph operators, prospectors, tavern keepers, men who, except for the few merchants and prof uh, professions among them, 
might pick up and leave at any time. Still, they needed the ministrations of a priest. And with Father Kelly's arrival in Salt Lake City, the Catholic Church committed itself to the people of Utah. The, U the Union Vedetti in May 21, 1866, noted the presence of Father Kelly in the city. He took rooms that served as his quasi-rectory in a residence of Immigration Street 300 South. He obtained the use of an Independence Hall nearby and lectured Friday night, May 25, 1866, on the perpetuity of classic literature. The subject surely alleviated any fears that he might arrange against the alleged tyrannies of Brigham Young, as Congressionalist Norman McLeod had done in the hall the year before. The following Sunday, Father Kelly offered Mass at 11 a.m. and baptized two children, Edward Ryan and Urban Wardman. On Monday, he baptized Edmund Milford. And on the following Saturday, five others, possibly at Camp Douglas. And on Sunday, June 3rd, two more. That Sunday, he offered early Mass at Camp Douglas and one later Independence Hall in the city. And shortly thereafter, he traveled to Stockton, then the only town in Utah founded by non-Mormons. He remained there a week, offering Sunday Mass on June 10th and baptizing four children. He returned to Salt Lake City to celebrate a Mass on June 17th, went again to Stockton for a baptism on Monday, and returned to take the Overland stage for Austin on Saturday, June 23rd, 1866. The newspaper expressed, quote, The hope that he may again visit our city for a longer period. The first edition of Intermountain Catholic Newspaper, dated October 7, 1899, confirmed that Father Kelly did revisit Utah, but not until 1876. He preached in Salt Lake City on January 16th that year. He also met with Brigham Young and received an autographed book from him. Then he returned to Austin, where his last baptism was recorded August 28, 1876. He is believed to have left Grass Valley Diocese in 1876 to enter a monastery. Later writings revealed no more about him. The desert somehow claimed him to itself. Father Toussaint Mesplay, Mesplay 1824-1895, a kind of missionary at large who had served the vicariate in Idaho Territory since June 1863, paid occasional visits to Utah for over a decade. On February 11, 1873, he wrote Bishop O. Gorman at Utah, urgent appointment of a bishop for Montana and Utah. Finally, a decision of February 5, 1868 resolved the matter of jurisdiction. Colorado and Utah were erected by papal brief into a vicariate. The very Reverend Joseph Mashbuff was consecrated bishop in St. Peter Cathedral in, in Cincinnati on August 16, 1868 to serve the new vicariate of Colorado, Utah. After completing visits throughout his vicariate, during the following months, Bishop Mashbuff set out for Utah. He caught the stage from Cheyenne, rode a regular passenger train to Laramie, and then climbed aboard a work train to the end of the line in Green River. Continuing by stage, he arrived in Salt Lake City Sunday morning, November 20, 1868, and was escorted to Camp Douglas by General Connor. There he offered Mass, instructed, baptized, and confirmed Catholics of the small community in the city. He remained until December 10, 1868, and then returned to Denver. En route, the unexpected cold bath of his overturned stagecoach during the Bear River crossing reflected the often hazardous trail of that era. Before leaving for Europe in May 1869 and search of priests to work this vast territory, Bishop Mashbuff entrusted Catholic Utah to the care of Father Honoré Borion, who arrived at Corinne in 1869, probably in the fall. He remained only six weeks, complaining later to the bishop about the transient Catholic population scattered far and wide and frequently quite poor. Yet to this priest belongs the honor of offering Mass for the first known time in Ogden and Corinne. His successor, Father John Foley, was expected to center his activities in Corinne, projected then as the Gentile capital of Utah. He arrived there in September 1870, but by December he moved to Salt Lake City where he remodeled the little adobe building on the land Father Kelly had purchased on 2nd East. From there, Father Foley regularly visited Corinne as a mission. Then once more, Rome intervened in the matter jurisdiction of Utah Territory. Permission was granted for Bishop Mashbuff to be relieved of the responsibility of Utah, and he recalled Father Foley. 
Archbishop Alameda San Francisco again accepted Utah as part of his archdiocese and with a few more priests now at his disposal, quickly moved towards the establishment of a parish in Utah territory. Father Patrick Walsh was sent, apparently with instructions to erect a church. The training in Corinne on the June day, on a June day in 1871, he was met with a warm welcome, but plans proposed for a church and a school there never materialized. Father Walsh moved on to Salt Lake City, taking up residence in the adobe building Father Foley remodeled on the site purchased in 1866. There he set plans in motion for a new church to replace the temporary chapel. To Henry Mohane of Corrine went the contract for design and construction of the edifice. Before years end, the church was well underway. Bishop Alamy traveled to Utah for his dedication on Sunday, November 26, 1871, named in honor of St. Mary Magdalene. The church was the first in Catholic Utah, affectionately known as St. Mary Church. The humble house of God was destined to become a pro-cathedral of the future diocese. The Salt Lake Tribune of November 27, 1871, described the building that was in its unfinished condition, quote, The outer walls and buttresses are built of red bricks with substantial foundation of sandstone. The walls are 84 feet in length and 34 feet in width, having a height of 26 feet. The cupola, which will, will be finished with a groove of Gothic curve surmounted by a large gilt cross, a provision being built for a bell about 400 pounds, the side walls of the main building are pierced with Gothic lancet windows. The ceiling is three-sided and is 26 feet from the floor. The apse at the altar end of the church has a curved ceiling. The altar is of highly floriated Gothic architecture being of sturdy medieval design. The little altar to the left, displaying the gilt monogram IHS, was surmounted by a three-quarter length picture, a brilliant chrome, of the Assumption of the Virgin by Murillo. The original is the famous picture valued at 40,000 pounds. Of the ceremony itself, the newspaper reported, quote, the Catholics forming but a small section of the audience occupied the seats immediately in front of the altar. The Mormon and Gentile in general, being on the back ones in the gallery with the choir and standing at the entrance porch. The ceremony of the dedication services as well as the ritual of the Mass itself was very interesting to the auditors, many of them never, having never witnessed the like before or witnessing it years ago in Catholic communities in remote regions of Europe and America. The entire cost of the church when finished being estimate, estimated by the Father at $9,000. Perhaps at the suggestion of Father Walsh, Archbishop Alamy paused in Corrine on Wednesday morning, November 29, 1871, offered Mass in the Opera House, and met with his congregation. Apparently impressed, he returned to San Francisco and shortly thereafter appointed Father Patrick Downing's first pastor. It was not clear yet what the extent of his parish was, but seemingly Father Downing was responsible for the little communities lying along the railroad, principally Ogden and Kelton. Newspaper accounts speak of the Catholic Church of Corinth, but no site or building can be so identified. And it is surmised that it might have been a little building acquired by Ed Conway behind the Central Hotel and known as Fitch's Schoolhouse. Evidence indicates that Father Downing arrived in Corinth the first week of January 1872. He offered what is most likely the first time Mass to be sung in Corinth on the following Palm Sunday, March 24, 1872. But the development of Corrine did not expand as anticipated. At this time, the population of Corrine was approximately 1,000, while Salt Lake City numbered 19,000. Father Downing was reassigned in June 1872 to assist Father Walsh in caring for the needs of Catholics in the mining and smeltering communities throughout the Salt Lake area. However, Archbishop Alame summoned Father Downing back to California in August 1872, and Father Walsh soon followed in June 1873. Later that year, the spirit inspired by Dominguez and Escalante 100 years earlier stirred anew in a young priest who volunteered to come to Utah as a replacement for Father Walsh. His name was Father Lawrence Scallon. Archbishop Alame was surprised and delighted when Father Scallon, 1843-1915, came forth in 1873 to volunteer to go to Utah. He had been ordained only five years, but Father knew what he was getting into. During the several years he served as a Nevada mining camp of Pioche, 
He had learned something of the loneliness of the wilderness and the ministry of men in the mines. Such experience and perhaps his entire life have prepared the young Irishman for this moment. In 1873, the Mormon theocracy dominated Utah. Only about 800 Catholics lived among the 87,000 pioneer settlers within the territory. Here, Father sensed an unprecedented responsibility. While respecting conscientious diversity, he set out to maneuver a permanent Catholic presence. Father came from County Tipperary, born there in 1843. He attended Mr. Delahunt's private school in Cashel, studied pre-theology at St. Patrick's College, and then entered Old Hollows College. He was a thoroughly classical scholar, speaking French, German, and Italian fluently. Ordained in 1862 for the Archdiocese of San Francisco, he served briefly at St. Mary's Cathedral of San Francisco and in Northern California missions. He was then assigned to Pioche and upon returning from there, was given the California parish in Petaluma. Among his parishioners there was the paternal grandfather, Most Reverend William Wagond, who would succeed the young priest as seventh bishop of the Diocese of Salt Lake City a century later. An energetic urgency categorized Father Scallon's early years in Utah. Unlike his fellow laborers in the vineyard of the American West, he seldom took the time to leave his territory and then only if necessary. Archbishop Alamey, for example, returned several times to his native Spain. Archbishop John Leme of Santa Fe and Bishop Matchbuff of Denver both revisited their origins in France. But Father Scanlon, only having departed Ireland, never again set foot upon the soil of his homeland. However, his travels around Utah are legendary. Father De Dennis Keeley, 1848-1820, a fellow Irishman, arrived in Utah in 1874 and loyally labored side-by-side -side with Father Scanlon over, for over 40 years. From 1874 to 1819, he was vice-rector and in later years, rector of St. Mary Magdalene Church, built in downtown Salt Lake City in 1871. He also became vicar general and the first editor of the Intermountain Catholic, the diocesan newspaper founded in 1899. Father Keeley directed church affairs when Father Scanlon was traveling throughout the territory. In 1875, Father Scanlon invited sisters of the Congregation of the Holy Cross in South Bend, Indiana, to join the missionary effort in Utah. Sisters Augusta Anderson and Raymond Sullivan, the first two of over 60 sisters to labor in Utah Territory, traveled by railroad and stagecoach to Salt Lake City in June 1875. The sisters immediately undertook their heroic and enduring dedication of the Catholic Church in Utah. Within the year of their arrival, they built St. Mary Academy for elementary, secondary, and college education for girls and opened Holy Cross Hospital, both in Salt Lake City. The following year, they opened St. Joseph's School for Boys and the on the grounds of the academy. In his letters, Father Scanlon tried to make the propagation realize that the geographical territory under his jurisdiction was huge. It covered 157,567 square miles, embracing 84,900 in Utah and an additional 72,667 square miles in seven counties of eastern Nevada. The handwritten reports Bishop Alamey forwarded to the propagation provide insight into the dedication and persuasiveness of Father Scanlon. They remain among the few writings that have survived him. Describing sick calls flashed over the wires to him from perhaps as far away as 200 miles. Father Scanlon wrote Archbishop Alamey, We have to travel day and night in cold and comfortless stages over roads rough and sometimes almost impassable through snow. Father Scanlon once rode horseback over the 375 miles from Salt Lake City to Silver Reef in southern Utah, and on a trip to Tintic, he lived three weeks in a log cabin, sleeping at night with his blankets on the floor. In a letter in the late 1870s to Archbishop Alamey, he mentioned a visit with, quote, a small band of Indians numbering 500 for 10 days. In the absence of Father Scanlon, Father Keeley occasionally submitted an annual report sent through Archbishop Alamey to the propagation. Quote, Last spring, Father made a visit to the little town, Provo, 80 miles from Salt Lake, where he remained five weeks preaching twice on Sundays and catechizing such as desired information during the week. He was always greeted with a full house and lect when lecturing and could boast 
of only one Catholic family in his congregation. When required, Father Keeley himself made missionary journeys. Thus, he reported to the Propagation Office on November 1, 1884, Last September, I traveled over the part of the railroad which lay within the borders of Utah, a distance of 350 miles. At every 10 miles distance, two or three men, with their assistants, were in charge of the same number of miles of track. Of the men in charge, nearly all were Catholics and mostly un all unmarried. In that distance, I met only five Catholic families. Describing another trip, he wrote, In May, I visited a military fort which is 250 miles from Salt Lake. The fort is seven miles from an Indian reservation where 3,000 Indians are camped. Escorted by six soldiers, we set out on a three days journey over uninhabited and uninhabitable country, carrying our bedding and provisions for the journey. Two nights we camped in sagebrush where we found a small stream of water. Some of the Indians visit the fort every day. I met their great chief, Colorado, who two months later was on the warpath. The size and seemingly endless territory remained overwhelming. Scanlon told the propagation on October 14, 1877, During the past year, finding that two priests were entirely inadequate to work to be done here, I applied to His Grace, the Archbishop of San Francisco, for another assistant whom he kindly and promptly sent me. This increase of the clergy obliged me to erect a few additional rooms to those already adjoining the rear of the church. Father Scanlon's physical stamina proved one of his greatest resources. He was over six feet tall in stature and weighed 200 pounds. It was not unusual to see his robust figure driving a horse and plow on the grounds of Holy Cross Hospital, opened by the Holy Cross Sisters in 1881. However, a serious bout of mountain fever had afflicted him in Nevada in 1869, and apparently his health was a concern on at least one occasion in his early years in Salt Lake City. Archbishop Alamy confided to the propagation on November 4, 1879, that the pastor of Salt Lake City is just recovering from a severe attack of sickness, which made me feel quite uneasy. In 1875, Father Scanlon joined St. Joseph Parish in Ogden. He regularly visited small Catholic communities throughout the northern counties of Utah. The Holy Cross Sisters opened Sacred Heart Academy in Ogden in 1878 for elementary and high school girls. In 1882, the sisters also founded St. Joseph Parish School in Ogden, a co-educational elementary school teaching grades 1 through 8. The sisters were later opened St. Joseph High School in 1929. Both of these schools, elementary and high school, continue to operate in Ogden today. In 1880, Father Scanlon reported, Six years ago, there was no sister here. Now there are over 40 and still they come. These sisters have done more to re remove prejudice and give tone and prominence to our cause than we priests could have done in many years of hard work. Recognizing the spirit of determination of the expanding community in Utah Territory, Pope Leo XIII established the Vicariate of Utah in eastern Nevada in 1886. He appointed Father Scanlon as Vicar Apostolic, a position similar to a bishop and a missionary. C. While also placing several eastern and southern counties in Nevada under the new bishop's authority in Utah Territory. <laughs>